Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Lionsgate Television Group's Kevin Beggs, speaking at Content Canada about how the US studios adapting to the changes brought by COVID and streaming, the fortunes of limited series versus procedurals, international partnerships and where the industry's headed next. And from Tomorrow Studios, Marty Adelstein and Becky Clemens on how the ITV Studios backed producer behind shows such as Snowpiercer and Cowboy Bebop has built up to its latest series, Chilling Showtime Horror, Let the Right One In. Content Canada took place in person in Toronto last month, with a sellout crowd hearing from industry luminaries spanning local and international broadcasters and streamers, producers, distributors and creatives. Among those headlining was Kevin Beggs, chair of the Lionsgate Television Group and chief content integration officer for the division's parent company, who this week renewed a long-term contract with the business. He spoke to C21 Media Editor-in-Chief and Managing Director David Jenkinson about how the US studio is adapting to the changes brought by COVID and streaming and where the industry is headed next. The pair discussed the rise of AVOD, the fortunes of limited series versus procedurals, international partnerships, Canadian originals and much more. I'm going to start by asking you, Kevin, um, you know, we're um, we're not totally out of the pandemic yet. But how has it changed your business? What, what, what have the last two years meant for, for, for you as you emerge from a very difficult time, both creatively and commercially? Sure, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, some immediate things were quite obvious, you know, a huge incremental additional cost uh, hit to every show, starting with the testing protocols, the masking, the serving food in a different way, multiple vans instead of, you know, throwing everybody into a crew cab and hoping for the best. Um, so that was probably anywhere from 15 to 25% per episode uh, in scripted. It's a little less costly in unscripted uh, because most unscripted is not connected to guilds. So you're not dealing with SAG, WGA, DGA, and a series of protocols. You're not rehearsing. It's just a, it's more doc style. So they've been able to keep it going. But we jumped in earlier than almost any other studio. We shut down, as everyone did, around March 13th, 2020. We had to wrap 25 shows over a weekend uh, all around the world. Our movie people were doing the same thing in the movie side, probably 10 different movies out there. Um, but our, our, our network partners at Stars were very keen to get a show that we had shot a little bit of nine episodes, eight days and eight episodes and one day short of nine episodes out of 10 of um, uh, our spinoff of Power. And they really needed it for September. Um, and they, they kept them, which is where Power t- traditionally had run and Power had finished a year before. So they were pressuring heavily in a good way to like, can we find a way to get back to work? Kind of whatever it takes. And that led us to just innovate in ways that we had never thought we would and hiring, you know, these health and sanitation companies who, you know, had a whole different business before going to Africa, dealing with outbreaks of other things that now were production people, uh, you know, and advising us on line readings sometimes that we didn't like, but, but, the, but they, they were pretty safe. And, and we got back into production in, in mid-August of that year, which is, you know, most of the other studios in my world were not till October, November. Um, it was extra expensive to get started that early, but we did get that show on the air and, and stars really needed that continuity. That opened the door for us to get a bunch of other shows on because we had done it. By virtue of necessity, we broke through. Our goal, of course, was to keep you know as safe as possible and still keep shooting. 
when the vaccines came through the next spring, uh, of course, we you know jumped into getting everyone as vaccinated as possible. There was all kinds of you know twists and turns in the road. There's some vaccine believers. There's some vaccine hesitants. There's some vaccines never, and they're all working on shows. And uh, it was an interesting dynamic. But ultimately, now it's you know, the costs are a little reduced, and we're in a rhythm. And you know we didn't miss a beat. But it will always be an overhang. Now uh, nothing will be exactly the same. I think these will these restrictions will start to ease. But I think we're always going to now think about what's next which is just never part of anyone's thinking about production. There's always like, oh, there's a lightning storm or a hurricane or, you know, a wildcat strike. Pandemic was not in the get ready for that book, um, but, we, but we navigated. And everyone had an awful lot of time to watch an awful lot of television. Well, that was the plus. That was a good do you thing. Think that, um, how do you think that changed the audience? Well, I, I, think, I, I think it changed the audience. I think it changed the world relative to time spent and wh wh what is the value of time and what's your relationship with work and how is an office a thing or a construct that we've all just accepted for 150 years because that's what they did a long time ago and, and, and what do you have free time for? I mean, selfishly as a TV purveyor, we're happy that a bunch of people start and, and right in that window, a bunch of services launched. Uh, you know, HBO Max and others relaunched and Crave and, you know, all these are still building. Peacock launched. They're all challenger brands trying to catch up with the biggies. Um, and they were spending a ton of marketing. We'd experienced that same rhythm, if you will, in the basic cable space with shows like Mad Men and Weeds and Orange is the New Black for Netflix. When they, you know, launching something, they're giving you not only the normal launch, marketing money that you might get for a show amongst 50 shows they might have when they're kind of branding the whole network around it they spend even more because they're trying to get you in and to watch the show so we were the beneficiaries um we had the first show the first scripted show in love life in that hbo max had available but for pandemic we were not intended to be number one we were like number five you were finished all these <laughs> other shows were suspended in animation and ours was ready, and so it, so good for us because they put all their marketing dollars. You can go anywhere in the U.S. without seeing Anna Kendrick on a billboard, uh, which is never a bad thing. Uh, and the show did pretty well. We got a second season. So you know, there's some pluses and minuses in the equation. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the the business did change alongside the world changing, and. I can remember in 2019, as we were just going into this, the end of 2019, all of those services were just about to launch. That's and right. It was a very, very, very different world in terms of where we are, we are, we are today. How did the rest of the business change, do you think, during, during COVID? And coming out of it, I suppose, because we really have gone on a roller coaster, haven't we? Yeah. Even six months ago, we wouldn't have had, we'd had a very different perspective on what was going to happen with streamers and terrestrials and co-production. Right. It, it seems to be, the pace of change seems to be accelerating as the world is put back together. What, what do you think the headlines are for the way the total business has changed, not really during the pandemic, but probably in the last six months? Well, I think a lot of trends in all businesses, but we'll focus on ours, you know, have this pandemic accelerated a bunch of trends. It, it, it accelerated the idea that the knowledge economy didn't have to be rooted to some geographical space on a nine to five or nine to six basis for efficiency and productivity to happen. Our television group has never been more productive, ironically, in a time when for, you know, two years we couldn't get together. And that is completely counterintuitive to, I think, prevailing ideas about office culture and talk about collaboration and hallway creativity and elevator pitches and, you know, the, the, the language that we 
talk about when we talk about corporate offices in any business, but ours especially, is kind of like, yeah, when people get together, magic things happen. Maybe, maybe not. A bunch of magic still happen. Uh, and and we have done better than we ever did before. Profoundly impacted the theatrical business. Profoundly. We see that the only big mo movies that are you know, breaking through our giant IP, tentpole movies. So this whole other corollary business of direct-to-streaming, which did not really exist in movies, uh, except as a last resort and usually day and date and PVOD as opposed to, you know, those are now very common. Every one of these streamers has movie divisions making big feature films. You can look at The Gray Man as top of that food chain, but everybody is making those movies. And studios like our own are deciding whether we want to release those theatrically or take them directly to the market and monetize them in different ways. That, you know, w what was happening anyway, I would say, from a television perspective with serialized shows, novelistic shows, call it The Crown, call it Peaky Blinders, call it whatever you will, that are deep dives that require, you know, hours and hours and hours of storytelling as those have been eating away at the middle of the movie market, which would be important, maybe earnest, amazing dramas that might get a lot of awards, maybe not giant commercial successes, but are important. You know, those stories are migrating and have been into longer form storytelling, to, you know, to throw a movie title out there that some of you may remember, but I do because I'm old. Uh, but, you know, think about a movie like Kramer versus Kramer, which is an Oscar winner, Dustin Hoffman, uh, divorce drama. Today, that's 10 episodes on any streamer. And they would say, you could never tell that divorce story in two hours. How, they must have shortchanged us. I want the whole relationship. I want the five-year litigation, the divorce, the kids, the garage, the dogs. And, you know, let's do another. And that's just the, you know, but you're not doing Avengers that way. It's a big movie. Yeah, but that's true, isn't it? And it, I imagine it has changed your business in terms of how you think about those projects and how sure. you think about the IP that you're going to develop normally into long-form stuff these days, yeah? Yeah, well, I think there's an interesting... What, what you know, I think the dividing line... When, within our own company, anything that's two hours is, you know, we can't touch. So that's the, in the world of Joe, Drake, and the motion picture group. And anything that's, like, more than that, we can touch. That's our world, and movies... Many things are not a series, but as you're seeing all over, there's a massive proliferation of limiteds. So, you know, is the Theranos story a movie? Could be. Is it four to six hours on Hulu? Yes. Uh, can you get an amazing actor or actress that is never going to do a series because they have a huge movie career, but would be happy to do, like, you know, we got involved deficit financing and distributing Pam and Tommy. And you're not getting those actors in series. They're not tying up six to seven years of their lives on the off chance that they're going to have a CBS procedural. They're not doing that because they're movie stars. But they will do and get a big award uh, that's a six hours that's kind of like a movie schedule for them. So that's a whole new world for us because th that talent was not available in the television space, and now it is. So it's pretty exciting. Do you think that, the, that this time and these changes have changed our relationship with stardom anyway? I mean, there's been lots of breakthrough hits that have not necessarily been based on big stars. You know, well, that, that's come on a lot more Traditionally, strongly. TV, the, an adage that, you know, has been bandied about Hollywood long before I ever went to work in that space was, you know, television makes stars. And movies book they, they book stars because if, if you can't open a weekend, you're not a movie star. Uh, but and, and is by that more true now? I don't know. It's a funny. It, it used to be a very clear Maginot line between 
those who did movies and those who didn't. One of the challenges was that in the traditional broadcast schedule, 22 to 26 to going back to the 60s, there's a reason why there's like Star Trek, you go, oh, it was on for like two and a half years. How come they have 150 episodes? They were doing 40 a season. And there was no time for those actors, even if they could get a movie, to get a movie. More, tr more recently in recent history, George Clooney was on ER. All of a sudden, he popped. ER became the biggest show in television. He wangled his way out of his contract to become a movie star. He could never do movies on the schedule that ER had. And, and usually, the, two, the twain would never meet. So if you're Tom Selleck, you do TV. And if you're somebody else, you do movies. That's all off the table now, because these are short orders and schedules in which people like Amanda Seyfried, who just won an Emmy, are doing both. Let's talk a little bit about your, your slate and, and, and why those shows are the ones that you pick up and, and, right. and ultimately make. You, you had 14 new shows picked up for series this year, I believe, right. and 15 existing franchises that are returning. Right. Um, can we talk a little bit about the, um, the stuff that's upcoming, the, um, the Julias and the Serpent Queens, and, sure. and, 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 and why, why those? Right. Well, look, as, as you know, we don't really make the market because we're not the network, right? The, the studio and producers that, with whom we have deals, and we can talk about that, are, are responding to the market. So you know, in a bad sports metaphor, you take what the defense gives you. And where the openings are, that's where we go. And as an independent and a challenger brand and not as big and as resourced as you know, giants like Comcast and Viacom and Warners, you know, we, we have to be a little more opportunistic and jump in where we see openings. That's why we began really getting into the cable space when cable, domestic U.S. basic cable was kind of a, there was always HBO, which was, it's not HBO, it's not TV, it's HBO, over there. And then everybody else who mostly ran old movies and, and did lower cost, cost programming. And then the Mad Men, you know, on AMC and Weeds on Showtime and Breaking Bad, not our show, but also on them. These started to redefine FX with Nip Tuck and The Shield and all their shows started to redefine the whole landscape and none of the big studios were that interested in that business because it was not nearly as profitable as a broadcast hit. So that was an opportunity for us and, and Sony who had both been in network, out of network like five different times and then decided, hey, we'll, we'll play in cable and there was nobody else in that business. That's great for us because we could compete. Then everybody got in that business and every one of those majors created their own cable division, whether it was Warner Horizon or FX Studios uh, or Universal Cable Productions. Every single one of those was kind of modeled on like what we and Sony were doing as independents. And then we, while we continued to work in cable, pivoted into streaming because nobody was going there either. And nobody could figure out the model. And wait a minute, it's cost plus. What does that even mean? And you know, we were in there really early with Orange is the New Black and a bunch of shows. So we look at the whole market and go, like, what's open? And interestingly enough, as most of these big players have consolidated and they're kind of focusing on their streaming offerings because that's the new currency of evaluation is how many subs do you have and what's the churn rate and are you expanding globally at the same pace as a Netflix and a Disney and where are you in the, in the, in the hierarchy of where you are? they're kind of paying a little less attention to their traditional broadcast platforms, probably starving them for a little money a little bit because they're putting stuff in. 
And those broadcast players still have, you know, a bunch of hours to fill every week, and a whole bunch of people still watch broadcasts. And for the first time ever, we've actually been, you know, kind of on an even playing field, or close to an even playing field with these players. So we have, you know, a broadcast series on every network now. It was unheard of five years ago, ten years ago. Five, when I started at Lionsgate, they said the one thing you can't do is work a broadcast, because we'll, you know, go out of business. And uh, so that's interesting, and that's just a change. The next player in this space is Avod. Right? The, the, the two Bs and the free Vs and the Plutos and the Peacock on the ad tier are all in this space and many more are coming. Roku, huge player, they have a ton of business together. They're doing originals, they're kind of using that same playbook. They're in the virtual bundle now, not the tradi traditional linear bundle. They need originals to differentiate, differentiate themselves. They share a lot of the same assets with other platforms. You know, Weeds, which uh, my, my colleague Agapi there put together on our reruns around the world and also domestically with her partner Ryan, is on four different US platforms after its nine year run on Netflix. And they are in the same window roughly. Uh, so they, if you have the five things that everybody else has, what do you have? So if you're, if you're Roku, you're doing the Zoe's Extraordinary Christmas movie that we did with them, or you're doing the Weird Al Yankovic story, which seems to have found an audience here at TIFF. And that's good for us. What do they want right now, though? Have things changed? Because and, and are there characteristics that is in this new raft of programming sure. that is about a new audience and the way that audience wants to consume and what it wants to consume? No, it's a great question. I would start with saying, you know, with our sister network, Stars, we know exactly what they're after because they are very clear and specific, and it's a great advantage. There's no put or call. You know, the, we don't have to bring them everything first, although we do. Uh, some things are never going to be right based on their programming mandate. We have 15 shows together. We just uh, launched The Serpent Queen on Sunday yeah. night, which was 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. And, and that directly came out of our experience when we acquired the network, started working with them. One of their very successful streams of programming were these monarch, female monarch shows, white queen, white princess, Spanish princess, they're doing things like that, and Erwin um, Stoff, who's one of uh, the partners at Three Arts, a company with whom we've invested, a big production management outfit, has a great writer, client, and Justin Haith, who found this story of Catherine de Medici to be really interesting, and we thought, wow, it really fits within the flow. So they were a natural place, and it never was pitched anywhere else, because stars, you know, bought it over lunch. So we think about what they're looking for, we know better. Everybody else shifts a lot. I would say the commonality in a world of 600 series, roughly, in primetime scripted, either pre-existing IP that people know already or a story that people know already that's being retold a different way. TV was rarely about pre-existing IP. It was usually about original ideas to do a cop or medical or legal drama. Now it's very book-based, which was always the province of movies. Uh, but whatever it might be, it needs to be so loud and noisy that it kind of markets itself. So when you think about a Pam and Tommy, it's a pretty loud story about the first kind of you know globally uh, deployed sex tape and also all the people involved, rock star, TV star, so on. Like that markets itself, right? Hulu like, gets out of bed and that's sold. And, and other things are much harder. You know, they may be more obscure, they may not be. And those are, those are the, you know, that's the delicate tightrope of something that's original because it's very easy to go, oh, I know that story, I'll retell it a different way. We get excited about people that come in, writers, producers, directors, actors, and simply say, this thing that I have must be made. Uh, when Matt Weiner was in discussions with AMC about Mad Men, and we got a chance to meet with him to express our interest to become the studio and come aboard that show before it was going into production, you could tell in like 
you know, 20 seconds, like, unless he made this show, like, his life would be over. And he was going to do everything possible. <laughs> and that is because in this world of kind of auteur television, which is what it has become, and if it's just a commercial thing, I'm trying to pick up a couple of bucks, its chances of success are limited. It needs that extra gear that, that auteur brings to it. And that's what we're looking for. There's lots of limited series on, yeah. on at the moment, and um, I just wonder how that relates to the sort of the, the procedural market. Because uh, if we're going back to ad-supported platforms in right. a way, yeah. is is the opportunity to to go back to more procedural drama an opportunity, or do you not see that as something that will? Well, procedurals. Come back? See the the beauty about procedurals. You know, they're 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 not sexy in so much as they're generally getting awards and critical acclaim, right? Law and Order by virtue of its like 19 different spin-offs and the Chicago series, you know, Dick Wolf is the most prolific, most successful series creator maybe ever, just on volume and profitability. Uh, super shrewd businessman has, you know, and, and has kept Peacock and NBC and all of the, you know, this great run. And they, they have staying power. And when you're, when you're really trying to keep the streaming audience in, beyond just saying, I signed up for six weeks of something and I will now cancel because now I know how to do that with my app as opposed to calling the cable company. And in a month, some guy might come with a van. And if you miss him, it's two more months and you've paid all that money, which was always their scheme. The, it's just, you know, people are in and out, and they're super surgical, and I think it's generational and also just tech-savvy. Like, I can't figure out how to undo, unwind direct TV, so I just keep paying. <laughs> but my assistant would be like, well, you could do this, this, and this. You do the app, and like I did it in 10 seconds. Like, how hard was that? And it, so, you know, the fancy, pantsy, high-end actors, the great writers, the big story, the dope six, the limiteds that we're talking about get you in, but the, when you notice recently Netflix relicensed from Disney and CBS Studios Criminal Minds, like 350 episodes. Yeah. They, that staying power, that, that is stickiness is essential for long-term viewing and not signing out. It will take you a long time to watch all the Criminal Minds. So, it, would it be fair to say that you think there's going to be a resurgence of procedural drama over the next I five think years? It, I think it has its place and it will, continue, uh, it will continue to exist both in broadcast. I think you will start seeing some of the SVOD players realizing that the drips and drabs of 8 and 10 don't add up quickly enough to get the scale and also as an outside supplier, of course, licensing our products to these platforms as in, in reruns, whether it's Nashville or Mad Men or Weeds or some of our long-running shows, this is a plus for us because that, that, you know, that volume is meaningful. Uh, so I think there will be a mix. I, you know, Netflix already started to go with some more, uh, maybe more commercial than the first era with some of their stuff, some of their global shows like A Barbarian or Braun or other things. Squid Game, I think, is an outlier, but amazing. But I think they're also going down a road to find things that feel a little more broadcasty, and their counterparts are going to do the same. There's a lot of noise at the moment about a chill on peak TV. Where do you think we are with that? I, you know, so far, I don't see it. I think, I think the good news is, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there was three platforms in the U.S. Then it expanded to maybe 
10 or 12 scripted if you include the cable players, and now there's solid 20. And pro more that we don't even know about that are being devised you know, by the next Allen and Company conference that you'll read about. And not all will work, many are. Many are heavily resourced. We see the conglomerates and what they're putting into it. And there may be some consolidation, um, but every time there's a consolidation, there's some spin-off of some asset that turns into something. And you know the, the currency, aside from subscribers, but subscribers are connected to hits. Hits drive subscribers. It's always been a hit-driven business in every platform. That doesn't change. But now, as we talked about, the audience is a little more savvy, a little more fickle. They can tune in and tune out. And so how are you going to keep them? And to keep them, you have to put more shows on. Maybe you won't do crazy giant budgets. Maybe the mega budget series is a thing of the past. I look at Lord of the Rings and House of Dragons together. It's like a billion and a half dollars of spend. Doesn't seem like it's slowing. This move to add um, ads on streaming platforms mm -hmm. um, during the pandemic we all got used to not watching a lot of ads, or we probably right. watched less, fewer ads than we did before. And now the move is, is definitely, the, the trend is back to some advertising opportunities around this sort of content going forward. Right. How do you think that's gonna rebalance um, the relationship between advertisers, maybe advertisers that could be elsewhere as well? So yeah. What's its impact going to be on traditional channels? And, and do you think that audiences will, will, will take to that? And I know they are taking to that, but Right. globally and, and to drive the sort of fortunes that these companies need, is it enough? Well, look, advertisers are always, w with kind of the attenuation of media, uh, again, just speaking for the U.S. market, but I know it's replicated in, in Canada and Europe as well, when there was a handful of networks and they were driving share on a big night, let's say Roots or an event or the finale of MASH with 103 million viewers and driving 50% of the viewing public, you know, those were common numbers of like, oh, how'd you do? Oh, we got 50% of you in public. Yeah. Just that. <laughs> and now you're like, oh, I think it was a 0.01 in the demo, which, you know, might be 750,000 people. And you're still monetizing that. TV advertisers have been looking for something that will work. Digital is very diffuse. It's super targeted, but you never get the kind of audience that a mass viewing audience gets why football continues to drive American football and globally uh, regular football, but sport, you know, the TV business, the broadcast business is driven by sports still. And because they can get 15 to 20 million viewers on the Super Bowl, you might get 90 or 100. I mean, those are unheard of numbers. They're desperate to find a way back into television, terrified about streaming shutting the door. So I think nobody is more excited about Netflix announcing an advertising tier than Madison Avenue, because they can deliver, and, and Netflix, of course, has perfect knowledge. You know, Nielsen and ratings in general across broadcast and cable have, you know, have been somewhat of an alchemy, because it's not exact information. It's, it's great estimates. You know, Netflix knows, 30 seconds in, two minutes in, why did you stop watching episode seven of this particular, and never return, like they know their numbers, they can monetize those numbers. That kind of access is, you know, like a you know, like candy store for advertisers. And I, what's interesting, I would say television viewing to me breaks down, and it always has been this way, but into kind of two buckets. You know, lean-in viewing, super focused. Uh, let's just use the crown since the queen has passed away. And, and you think about the crown and the kind of nuance and detail, and it's not a show. At least I think that you can walk in and out of a room 
and you know miss like you know two minutes and know what's going on the way you would on a procedural like a CSI. Yes, you maybe miss the the one graphic of the bullet that went through the bone that went to the thing, but later they say, remember that graphic? Oh, here it is again. So lean in is auteur driven and you can't miss it and you kind of are annoyed by ads. Lean out, which every comedy is built on the, the, the bones of radio comedies, which could work if you were never watching them, which could work while you were work, you know, under your hood in your car listening to it, whether you could see it or not. That kind of viewing is still rampant and AVOD is like the answer. Uh, my wife is in the middle of I Love Lucy. She's watching like 200 episodes of this thing. She's half watching it, half doing something else, reading a book, and it's just kind of going. And I remember the episode based on the soundtrack that I remember as a kid of, you know, whether it was the candy factory or the Vitamina Vegemin, and you just go, I know that. It's like an old Christmas carol. Let's sing it. And that's how TV, AVOD, is watched. And it's okay. And I suppose there'll be movement between all those different tiers because there's going to be so many different right. sort of options that, that, that yeah. people might come in and back up again. That's right. Also, kids are a huge factor. A huge factor. You know, television in a streaming universe is more of a babysitter than it's ever been. And, you know, as you cycle through, if you have kids, that, you know, you're going through Disney Plus, of course, you're going to start with because it's Disney. And then, oh, what does Netflix have? And so on. And then, you know, for a while, you might have another one. And when that show ends, you're like, yeah, yeah, Blue's Clues went away. Like, eh, I'm off that one. And you're back to, it's going to happen. And, you know, and then you're out of that phase and you're like, why do we have all these kids' programs? I don't want that. My kids are out of the house. And, there's something for everybody. You work a lot with international partners and acquire shows from the international market for distribution. Um, what kind of partnerships work best for you and how, how do you see that changing over the next few years? Sure. Well, look, I think, you know, one of the things that's happening globally, and my a colleague Agapi can speak to it better, but I will try to channel her wisdom. You know, many of these um, international buyers had output deals. They had Warner outputs, they had CBS outputs, they have these things. Many of those are now going right to their global platform, their global streamers, and these shows are not available to get a long-running tenured broadcasters. Great opportunity for us, but also they are now reckoning with having to do co-productions and get in on the ground floor because the acquisition market is not as strong. There's just whole slates of shows that aren't coming anymore that were reliably coming to them to bid on or even an output they had. Uh, so, co-productions are the name of the game. We announced this morning a really, you know, great and innovative deal with Bell um, that we're, you know, quite excited about. We've announced previously one with Stan in Australia. We have a couple others working globally and finding stuff at source, on the ground, in those markets that we can come in with as a deficit partner and bring into the U.S. market as sellers and known content providers to find a way to make one plus one equal three. And if you're, for many of those buyers, if they're not in on the development process and just waiting for what might show up at MIPCOM, it's already too late. Yeah, totally. I think the, um, I mean, one of the shows we discovered in lockdown was Shit's Creek. Yes. Uh, which was a, a joy to uh, have on in the UK <laughs> during that period of time. And you were in early on that. Is that the sort of logic? Is it that sort of Yeah, that, that is. I mean, that's the gold yeah. standard. We'd love to say that, you know, we invented Shit's Creek. We cannot make that claim. But what, what we did do, uh, is own half of a network at that time. It was the TV Guide Network, which we rebranded as POP, and a really smart programmer, Canadian, named Brad Schwartz, uh, was, was running POP, and he, when he was at MTV Canada, had a relationship with 
Dan Levy and Eugene Levy and this show, uh, ITV, was the, the studio partner. It was commissioned but not yet fully financed. They were looking for a U.S. buyer. Everybody passed. Brad got a call from Dan, as I understand it, who said, you know, take a look at my show. Brad said, oh, this is a little expensive for us at Pop. Pop was not a big network. It, you know, it started as TV Guide Network, which just told you what shows were on other networks. <laughs> With a scroll. When we bought the network, 70% of the homes were scroll, and then like 30% wanted originals. We made it an originals network. Brad Botchitz Creek got the U.S. domestic rights. We immediately, and it was a very high license fee for them, a very small network. We immediately set about on the Lionsgate side. Our partners were CBS, who who on the other half of pop and we worked out you know when we would do a show we might take some distribution when cbs did a show they might get some we wisely uh, flipped a coin and it had two of the same sides so we stacked it for ourselves and we got the domestic distribution off of pop uh netflix was the buyer weren't so enthused about it going in but they found a way to buy it and of course, it turned out to be one of the biggest hits in the history of the network. And nobody knew it was on pop, except for the 129,000 people a night that watch pop. But the millions of people on Netflix who think it's a Netflix original and don't give credit to CBC or pop, uh, it really took off. So we'd love to take credit for it. It just sold again. It's on Hulu starting October. So, um, so I've just yeah. got the two, I think it was the two minutes left signal, unless it was something more. Uh, oh. oh, we could go on forever, David. We <laughs> Uh, be here all day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what sort of deals would you do next in Canada? Do you think uh, is there more? Are there more? Well, well, look, are there more partnerships to form, yeah, and what sorts got, of things got a great would you show. look for? Yeah, we got a great show with the CBC called Son of a Critch, which we're th thrilled about, and Agupi and her team are selling it globally, and we're in many discussions domestically about placing it. It's really funny. It got a second season right away. That kind of confidence from the the source network the source platform you need to get momentum because people are the buyers are sophisticated you know if they don't think a second or a third season's coming they'll just wait and go now we'll get it for you know fire sale pricing so that was great hats off to sally and jenna and the whole like cbc team for getting behind that and we were thrilled to get involved really early on it was one of the same producers from schitt's creek which is why we knew about it um the bell deal we announced with you know uh, justin and um is there scope for more deals like that yeah, well you can't do five of them right we're only one little company uh but we also have wong and winchester with rogers and i think we're always on the hunt and on the lookout for finding great shows luckily you know people call us now early and you know we hope one show begets two shows begets three shows and it's like hey there's a conversation to have also three arts as I said, we're a majority um, investor of Three Arts in the U.S. We have uh, five or six shows together there. They've launched their Canadian business. One of their partners, Michael Rotenberg, is Canadian, comes from this market, is excited about um, Trevor, who's running their operation, building business here. They have many more announcements to come a lot in the pipeline. We work together with them nicely. Uh, so, we're, you know, we're looking for that. And in the U.K., we bought, uh, bought a share of 42 recently, another great management production entity. You know, we think talent ultimately is where it all lies, particularly in this changing market, the disrupted market, but people still need talent no matter what, and we want to be in that conversation. So my final question to you is, where do you expect the business to be a year from now, the business? What's going to be the big change over the next 12 months, and what hurdles need to be removed for you to have the slice of that that you'd like? <sighs> Uh, I'm, I, we're, we're still going to be grappling with some version of, you know, COVID 
protocols and trickiness. I mean, what, uh, how that manifests itself today is that just, you know, so, you know, so many people get COVID, many of the cast, and you have to, you know, shift on a dime to bring in other people and send that person home for 10 days. So it's disruptive and expensive, but we found a way to do it. But that's going to be, I think, with us for a long time. Um, you know, I worry about uh, walled gardens, the idea that the, the biggest media players circle their wagons and don't buy from the outside and make it very hard for independents, whether it's a studio independent or independent producers, to get a toehold into selling and, and owning and distributing and controlling IP as opposed to simply being a work for hire business, which is a little more reflective of the non-scripted business, which can be a great volume business but does not build asset value. And asset value is what studios are valued on. And of course, those are the things, like a Dick Wolf who has said, one of the most prolific producers ever, the fact that he owns all those in partnership with Universal is why he's so successful. Had he been doing it for fees, he'd be living a really great life, but nowhere near as successful as the business that he's built. Uh, so that worries me a bit, I think. Inflation, war, you know, many things are, are always out there. Uh, I don't have any worries about TV viewing staying robust. I think the bar is incredibly high and the kind of talent that's moving into TV and different voices than just what we've been served up for 40 years is the most exciting. I think, the, you know, the Emmys were partially reflective of that, but I think just what we all watch and talk about changes the game every day. And that's exciting because it doesn't, it's not static, it's dynamic, it's changing and reflective ultimately of amazing culture. And we're here to like spread it around. ITV Studios back tomorrow studios is behind titles including Aquarius for NBC, Snowpiercer for TNT, Physical for Apple TV+, Cowboy Bebop for Netflix and 10-year-old Tom for HBO Max. Set up by former agent Marty Adelstein with one-time Brillstein Grey television chief Becky Clements on board as partner and president, tomorrow's latest show is a series adaptation of 2004 Swedish horror novel Let the Right One In for Showtime. Adelstein and Clement spoke to Michael Picard about how they've built up the business and what appealed about their new project being repped worldwide by Paramount Global Content Licensing. Thank you both for joining us. How are things at Tomorrow Studios? Tell us how your year is going so far. Our year is going pretty well. We've been selling a lot of new projects and uh, we have uh, four on the air, Becky, right now. Uh, five, yeah. Five. Mm -hmm. uh, and things are uh, moving along, you know. And we're all back in the area. office, which we're very happy about. Yes. It's fun to see humans again. Yeah, yeah. Are you finding things are, are kind of just, yeah, back to normal, back to, you know, 2019? Or how have things changed for you? Maybe not in the office, but when you're pitching or, or making shows in production, how are things maybe changed from a few years ago? 50% Zoom, 50% in person. So we aren't fully back to in person. We still do lots of mask wearing on sets. We still have testing. So I don't believe that's going away. So the, the mechanics of COVID's impact are in place, but we are heartened by all the creativity that people are managing to access despite, you know, masks and shields 
fields and tests, but yeah. So um, slightly different, but the material's still being delivered in an excellent way. Right, and, and, and five shows on the air, that would suggest that you've had, um, you know, few few problems navigating this new this new world. I mean, <laughs> can you tell us about some of the, the shows on your slate and, and how have you got them onto the air, you know, considering the last couple of years we've had? We have finished up Snowpiercer, which we've done for four years in Vancouver. We've done two seasons of Physical for Apple. Uh, we've produced a very big show in South Africa. We produced this great show, Let the Right One In, in New York. We're about to go into production on another one in Vancouver. We have our animated show, which, believe it or not, is the easiest in COVID. <laughs> Pretty easy. Um, and, the, you know, the first couple of years was like 30% of our job was COVID talk. And then once you get the systems in place... Um, it's just part of the machine, the way a lunch break is or a night shoot. It's just part of it. And we spend all of our time trying to keep everyone safe. And I, I would say that we've all learned to live with it. But yes, we've had quite a few hiccups um, uh, just in. It's really most difficult for our AD staff and our shooting crew because in a moment they have to reschedule an entire day. So we just are so appreciative and thankful of the people who were able to pivot sometimes with hours notice to make sure we could make a shooting day. And then editorial is mostly exclusively remote, which that's new. Yeah. Wow. And then you mentioned some of the titles there. I mean, how would you, um, you know, describe a Tomorrow's Studios show? Is there something that links them all together? Is it uh, a format, an IP? Is it, what is it you kind of look for in your shows and, and what would you say they have in common or or not perhaps? Is that is that what you like, the variety of, of the stuff that you make? I think that there's a real variety of the stuff we make and it really comes from our taste and what we find interesting to us you know it can go from Snowpiercer to we're big in buying animes out of Japan and making them into live action shows uh, so it really really depends on uh, on our taste and also we buy IP that we like we buy new IP and we dig into old IP to see what hasn't been made that should have been made and you you know, so that's really how we judge it. When Marty started as an agent, you know, with some of the biggest talent ever, I would say it was always about a specificity to their point of view, whatever it was, whether it was The Rock or The Turners or like he just has a knack for there is something specific and unique about that writer, that actor, that director. And then I worked at a company called Brillstein Gray and it was a comparable point of view. And that's where Marty and I met as he was building his agency. And I think there's something to that. So uh, there is there is uh, something about the point of view in each of these that we respond to, which I think is why it's eclectic, because that can be we have a big romance family drama we've optioned. We're making a deal with a stand up like we are all over the place. But if there's something super specific, that's the, probably the unifying point of view. And then and then I guess when you look at the landscape in, in the US, but also further afield with your partnership with ITV Studios? I mean, where do you see the obstacles? Where are the challenges? But where are the opportunities that you're hoping to sort of take advantage of at the moment? Challenges or money continue to be the cost of production. You know, if you can find a great show that comes in at a certain price point, that's what all the networks need. They're just spending a significant amount of money. So 
of course, they all say they want hits. Well, we all want hits, but I think um, finding something that is producible at a certain price point is is what they need mostly. They, of course, will spend their money on the Lord of the Rings, and but uh, I think they're going to need to do more sort of mid-level series because they just it's, it's a lot of cash out. So that's probably the the biggest challenge is finding a way to make great content at a certain price point, which what that means is fewer shooting days, fewer VFX. So you're really leaning into the words, the design, the performance more. Um, and that's what we're recognizing. It's coming back to character a lot more. And and then, so when we talk about your your next series that's coming up on Showtime, um, let the right one in, where does that kind of fit into the the, uh, the grand tomorrow's studio's plan how what how did you kind of come to that and what stood out for from you know the original property the the film the book the, you know when you saw that and you thought you know we'd love to turn this into a show well it's a funny story about seven or eight years ago my daughter came to me and said there's this swedish movie i want you to watch and i said what's it about she said vampires i said i've seen too many vampire movies she said no this is a really good psychological thriller in that and i watched the movie and i said i'm going to make this into a tv show Little did I know it would take seven years and two pilots to to get it on the air, but it was something that always stuck with me. And, uh, you know, and it's just something that I've always wanted to see on the air. And I'm really proud of what we've done with the material. Mm -hmm. And and tell us more about that that seven year journey then. You mentioned two pilots. I mean, was it, um, was there a a struggle to get the rights in the first place? Was that kind of a a big thing for you? And then obviously pitching and, and finding what the story could be over a longer period of time? Well, the rights took probably two or three years because they've been transferred from so many companies. And then it was complicated because the movie became an American movie, let the right one in. So, you know, it w- we went through two bankrupt companies and uh, <laughs> finally tracked down the rights in uh, the UK. Hammer Films had the rights to it, Simon Oaks there. And we were able to get that done. Uh, we did one pilot at TNT that just didn't work. And then we didn't give up on it. And we went out and Showtime really liked it and, you know, bit and Andrew wrote a great script and we were off to the races on it. Yeah, he he really, Andrew has done a tremendous job. And, you know, when he knew we had the property, he, you know, met with Alyssa Bogner who works with us and said, I want to go away and come back and pitch. I, I have to do this. And he, you know, had just created a, a way and was co-show running that. And he came in and he, he, he developed a show that really is a beautiful, emotional story about how how far will you go to protect your child wrapped with a vampire story wrapped around it. And I think that is what we love about it is it's both, it's sort of a genre overlap, which is as much a story about family as it is about vampires. And then he found this extremely clever way to give the show scope and scale through uh, the lens of um, addiction. And he's just, he is across every part of it. We are so proud of the material. We enjoy working with him. He's an absolute superstar. Our cast is phenomenal. Seath Mann directed the pilot. It's just it's always fun for us when we have an idea of what we want something to be and the quality of the material and the quality of the experience is so positive, including with our partners at Showtime. They are just absolutely clear and direct and creative. I wish every show we made went this well. Granted, it was a long journey. 
<laughs> to get here, but um, it's we're very proud of it. We're very excited. How would you describe the way you've used the original film, the American film, maybe, um, you know, what kind of sensibilities have you carried over and maybe lessons learned from from the, the TNT pilot that you kind of course corrected? You know, what kind of style and tone did you want for the show and, and how did you achieve that? Because to me, it reminded me, it's been a while since I've seen the film, but uh, it did remind me a lot of the, you know, in, just in terms of the pacing, it's a very patient, emotional driven show that I really connected with the first time around and sort of it was there again for me, I found in the series is that what you took i'm so glad you said that because to me that film has uh more emotional intimacy than most movies that aren't horror movies so i think that that is something that we really needed and that that's what distinguishes it we wanted to maintain that emotional intimacy which is always a challenge when you also need stakes and you need drama and you need horror and i feel that in we've done a really great job of it some episodes episodes. It's very sort of, you know, uh, heartbreaking in what's happening to the characters in other episodes. It is a full horror show. And I, I think our balance is quite right for whatever your access point is. But but that is the core of what makes this show, distinguishes it from other horror shows. It's just like it is personal and hard and heartbreaking. So that was important. I've, I feel like we we nailed that. And, and as you say, if, if people think, oh, it's another vampire show, how have you sort of sought to bring people to the show who don't want to watch another vampire show how would you say this treats that kind of genre element of the story you know through the the episodes yeah no i think we dealt with relationships and family really well and the vampire is part of part of it is part of it but it's really about a family and what you what one will do and sacrifice for their child and connection in our world we we don't live next door to our parents and our family anymore and you know it's everyone is in a moment of like where are the possibilities for me to connect and I think for this father and daughter they've not had that ability for survival and so to see connections for the first time is just so uh uplifting to, to see like yes please let him have a friend please let her have a friend please let I hope these people get to live some life and don't and can step out of the horror so I think that's the distinction we we have those the search for connection um is a big part of what would bring other viewers in who aren't horror fans and and so you mentioned yeah you've got andrew involved you've got showtime on board what was that uh sort of development process between you all to make sure that you were all kind of on the same page when it came to making the show and i guess was this all on zoom during the pandemic or what's the kind of the timeline then of, of uh you know bringing the show to air timeline has disappeared in the pandemic now so. we were in person initially we were because we yeah, would go we started and, you know, Notes, notes in person. That's right. We were in person. Um, but it was it, honestly, when you have, they are fans of Andrew. They recognize his talent. We've known Gary and David and Amy and all of these executives for many years. They know their audience. So it really was, once we were all together, we were swimming in the same direction. And as I said before, they are, they know their audience. They are crystal clear on their point of view. It, it's a dream. I mean, it's exactly what you want 
spent uh, working with the network to be. Yeah, it was one of the best development processes yeah. I've been through. Fantastic. Great, great. And, and at what point did you cast the show? Because you've got, um, you know, a single mom and her young son on one side, and then you've got uh, the single dad and the the, the special daughter, uh, who we obviously meet quite soon in, in the first episode. She's carried in a suitcase, um, you know, for reasons that viewers will find uh, quite quickly on why that is. But um, how did you go about forging those relationships? Because obviously they, they've got to be very emotional and, and very character-driven from the start. Did you do lots of chemistry reads with pairs of actors or, or what was that process like for you? We didn't do chemistry reads. Um, Dimian was a delight. Anika is so accomplished. The kids are always a challenge just because of their body of work, but Madison is experienced and had a very long resume and um, is such a dedicated actor. Uh, and then Ian just made us all smile. Like he was like the sunshine that got plopped into this world. And Grace Grace is fantastic. So it was just as individuals and talented professionals, we they just won us over. And that was Zoom. That was all Zoom. And we didn't, I actually believe we may, we did do a chemistry read with Madison and Demian that we did do. And we did a chemistry read with uh, Ian and Anika, but it was just really mostly for the other actors to see the kids because, you know, they have to play, you know, parents. And yeah, it was very, it was wonderful. And and what can you tell us then about just making the show? You're on location in New York, um, lots of night shoots from, from what I've seen so far. Uh, how was that for you? Was it particularly challenging in any way? We cheated a little. <laughs> <laughs> we were on stage quite a bit just to protect uh, our night shooting, um, but we still had quite a bit. You always want to do that at the end of the week because it's it's pretty grueling. We love New York. We um, hope, should we have a future, we want to lean into New York and the sort of the vibrancy of that environment. Um, but it was, again, very well planned with our producing team to sort of find those moments where we roll in tonight. But, be, you know, if you start paying attention, you'll recognize that we, you know, our production designer did an amazing job building sewers and like all of these places where you would think we were in a real sewer, but we were in a controlled environment stage so we could all have a little bit of life. Yeah. Where, where was your studio? Were you in anywhere near New York? Or was it we were, we, yeah. were, we, we were, were right outside in, uh, is it Glendale? Right in Queens. So yeah, we were yeah. we were in New York. Oh, well, yeah. great, great. And, uh, and so yeah, I mean, what can you tell us then about how the show plays out? What, what can viewers look forward to seeing maybe for fans of the films or, or people who are coming to it fresh? What? what's in store it's there's uh, more in other words what you were exposed to we grow the genre we grow the family sure. drama we grow uh the uh people catching on in the world we everything that we have established gets to an incredible crescendo by season's end um that will surprise you in many ways right and then what's next then uh, at tomorrow studios what, what what are you kind of working on next we roll into production on uh series uh season of physical in a couple of weeks then we we are in post on a very big netflix series we are halfway through a season for our animated show and then we start prep on four series in the spring yeah <laughs> yes yes and taking 
many more out. We have That's some amazing. great deals. We have a big Julia Garner project. Yeah, Julia Garner project we're taking out. That's a very big one. And we've made quite a few deals with producers and directors and writers. So we're kind of scaling our company with people that we share sort of a creative connection and allow them to also uh, produce and direct with us. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.